0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Health Conscious Podcast. My name is Peyton Eisner, we're so excited to have you back here joining us today. We've got a special guest today, but before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the next couple of weeks. We'll be taking a week off for the holidays, uh, so our next episode will not be until early January. Once we get back, we have a bunch of great guests lined up for you, including Derek Simmons, who... Christian and I know very well, as well as Tracy Scraba, who is the Chief Privacy Officer at CVS Health. So be sure to check that out. That episode will be coming out on International Privacy Day, so very fitting. But today we have Marla Byer, and she is the CEO and co-founder at Hopscotch. She has experience working as a project manager on NIH-funded clinical trials in the pediatric behavioral space at John R. Oshai Children's Hospital where she was responsible for recruitment, study design, management of clinical trials, data analysis, and child assessment. She also served as a research analyst at the University at Buffalo's Research Institute on Addictions, where she helped coordinate longitudinal studies examining the impact of prenatal substance abuse on child development. Additionally, Marla holds experience at United Health Group within Optum Health, where she worked on a variety of corporate strategy initiatives with the chief executive team. She holds an MBA, MBA, MHA from Cornell University's Johnson Graduate School of Management, where she was named a Freed Fellow. Christian and I know Marla very well, and we're super excited to have her here with us to talk about her entrepreneurial ventures. All right. Well, we're here with Marla. Marla, how are you today?
1: Doing well. Thanks so much for having me on, you guys.
0: Of course. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit more about your company, Hopscotch?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, So Hopscotch is a digital health company, which at its core aims to make pediatric behavioral health more engaging and accessible. And so I'm coming from a background in clinical research, primarily in the pediatric behavioral health space. And um, what I was seeing a lot of was really two main issues. Firstly, lack of access to care, but then also lack of engagement in between sessions, even though that compliance with follow-up treatment is really crucial to driving outcomes and seeing progress. And so what we've built is an integrated content library of gamified exercises and interventions that not only pediatric behavioral health providers can use to customize treatment programs for their patients, but that also pediatricians can use as well in order to further medical behavioral integration in the health home, which is the primary care office. And so that's essentially kind of high level what we're doing at Hopscotch.
0: Wow, that sounds fascinating and and like a good step in the right direction for, for kids. What was the motivation? What made you think of this idea and decided to pull the trigger on it?
1: Yeah. So I'm coming from an academic background. I always thought that I wanted to go into clinical research and um, it, which sounds kind of funny to say now, since I'm so kind of not in that world anymore. But um, so I was really working hands-on as a project manager at a children's hospital where every day I was interacting Uh, really, really in a hands-on way with children who are accessing care, their families, and the clinicians treating them. And I remember the first day on the job, I was chatting with a mom whose child was accessing treatment and she looked really distressed. And so I was just talking to her and she was saying how she had been waiting over eight months for an initial consultation with one of our child psychiatrists and how her child had a debilitating anxiety disorder, which was not only Causing him to have um, GI issues, but was also uh, hurting his school performance, was helping, was kind of um, hindering his social relationships, hindering the family climate and dynamic, and just really affecting a lot of areas in his life. And so, coming from the academic lens, I knew how crucial early intervention was. That's the most important thing. However, time and time again in the clinic, we were seeing that children were waiting months and months for an initial consultation to this type of very, very needed care. And so that was what really was the motivation for me to start Hopscotch, in addition to also becoming very close to the clinicians that I was working with and seeing that they were using very antiquated tools to engage the pediatric population and really being able to understand that this type of care required a special set of technology to not only uh, improve engagement in and out of the office, but also to bring the family into the care, since the family creates a crucial role in either helping to exacerbate symptoms or de-escalate in a lot of times. And so that was really just the motivation, just working so closely with not only the clinicians, but really the families and patients. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I, um, for people who may not know, I used to be a teacher. And so um, being in the classroom, I've seen how you know behavioral health can be so important to especially learning in particular. Um, and a lot of children either have struggled getting access to this or affording it, or um, the type of care that they're getting is maybe sub, subpar. Um, so it's really fascinating to hear about this. Um, and that kind of leads me into my next question um digital behavioral health and this sort of platform why do you feel like this is the right space um and why do you feel like it's the right way to solve the problem that you were kind of just mentioning
1: yeah so i think in healthcare a lot as healthcare leaders and in policy of course we hear a lot about early intervention um being proactive especially with um thinking through healthcare in a value-based lens and so A stat that continuously sticks out to me is that 74% of behavioral health conditions present before the age of 24 with over half presenting before the age of 14. And so what's really key there is even though we see that there's a lot of um, issue in terms of access to behavioral health care down the road in adulthood, you really start to see the beginnings of these types of uh, diagnoses in pediatrics and in childhood. However, our system currently doesn't have the resources to connect children and families to care at the time and place in which they need it which results in a lot of downstream, not only mental conditions, but also physical conditions as well. And so pediatric behavioral health as a total sort of industry represents an economic cost burden of $247 billion per year to the US economy. And that's um, a function of not only seeing increased interaction with the criminal justice system, but also the increased medical and behavioral claims insurers are paying out as a result of not being able to provide children with the appropriate time or appropriate care at the time and place in which they need it. And so being You know, really involved public health and always trying to think in an upstream way. I just saw that this was a really, really high impact space where if we could connect care children to care earlier on and provide them the optimal, most optimal care possible, then it would have a lot of cost downstream cost savings uh, for the our entire system. Really,
0: yeah, that's that's tremendous. Um, You've touched a little bit on, you know, the benefit for pediatric patients. Why are is it would it be beneficial for, you know, providers to buy into this model? What's the benefit for them?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think there's a couple things here. I think, firstly, an issue that a lot of providers are currently struggling with right now, especially through the pandemic and through delivering care in a more virtual way, is engagement while in a session. So if specifically you think about um, a child having a consultation with their psychologist, that consultation, that virtual consultation, is pretty ineffective um, as it currently stands just because there's a really low uh, rate of engagement and interactivity within that session. And so what we're doing is we have built this customized, embedded library of content and games and interventions that providers can not only use to improve the interactivity of a virtual appointment to make that as engaging as possible, but they can also say to that patient, okay, so these are the five exercises that we've worked in while in session, these will now be assigned to you as follow up work. So that while you're out of the office, while you're at home, while you're at school, when you start to experience these symptoms, there's this integrated customized content library that's individualized and personalized to you. Uh, And the child's then able to access that while out of the office. And so I think that's important because as a provider, they currently have overflowing caseloads with wait lists of months and months and months of children who are waiting for appointments. And so if we can think through a provider being able to monitor a large portion of their patients remotely, they're being able to assign gamified interventions and exercises and then check in regularly with them. They can then free up more of that Um, bandwidth in terms of their direct one-on-one time to those really pressing and acute conditions who are in most dire need of that really kind of one-on-one support and consultation. So we allow providers to not only save time by streamlining their workflows, but also increase revenue by being able to uh, allow them to bill for additional CPT codes related to remote patient monitoring and being able to uh, kind of, essentially extend their reach from that one-on-one care delivery to that continuous engagement out of the office.
0: Yeah, that's tremendous. Um, I wanna transition a little bit into kind of the idea of um, being an entrepreneur. Um, You built this company um, and I wanted to know as you were going through the entrepreneurial process, what were some unexpected challenges or needs that arose um, that you weren't quite expecting?
1: Yeah, I think that every day, to be honest, brings an unexpected challenge. <laughs> um, so it's been really fun to try and um, be in this role and just see every day as an amazing learning opportunity. But I guess more tactically, uh, building a team is something that nobody teaches you how to do unless you're you've done it before. And so I think that becoming a really good storyteller has been crucial because. In the beginning stages, all you have is the story of what you're building, is what's driving you, is the mission, and it's being able to convey sort of where you see this going to people that's really paramount, because I think getting, whether it be an investor or an early employer or an early employee or an early customer to buy in directly is related to your ability to convey your mission and vision for the future of the company. And so I think that um, a lot of the challenges that I faced have um, been almost um, mitigated or in a lot of ways made better by becoming a better storyteller and just being able to bring people on the journey with us, even when we're really, really early stage. Um, But also, I mean, in terms of other challenges, there's just like so many, like you, especially through the pandemic, we see the types of features that clinicians want changing every day. And of course, when you're selling to a particular group, there's so many different segments. So in our case, there's pediatricians, there's psychologists, there's psychiatrists, social workers, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that, What's been challenging for our team is trying to figure out how to prioritize each of the features and needs for each of these groups, in addition to thinking through what's important from a child perspective and what's important from the family perspective. And so I think being able to have a really clear focus on who you're building for and what their most pressing pain point is, and then being able to develop a strategic and planned and focused disciplined roadmap going forward is something that's incredibly challenging but something that um, is really really crucial.
2: Marla it's definitely been inspiring to hear your direction and vision and your um, motivation as a founder. I'm not going to embarrass this classmate but a classmate recently said to me if there's one person I guess I'll embarrass you, though. If there's one person that they would hinge their future success on. Oh. It was you. Oh. so uh, nice. And so, and I, I can definitely see that as, as we're having this conversation as well. It's, it's I've really enjoyed our conversation so far. So we may have some aspiring entrepreneurs listening into this episode today. Um, so I wanted to kind of, we, we've been speaking a little bit more about the strategic direction of, of hopscotch, but I wanted to kind of talk about the roots, uh, you know, how Hopscotch was born. And as I understand it, it was born during your time at Cornell and the development was catalyzed at the eLab. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit more about the, the role that um, accelerators play for entrepreneurs and what the value add was for you there?
1: Definitely, I think as a first time founder, I would, I cannot recommend an accelerator or an incubator highly enough just because it's, there's really two main benefits. First is the focus that it provides. So being able to surround yourself with a like-minded cohort of individuals who are also working on a startup or a company is crucial because in these early days, you have so many doubts about where you're going, about what you're doing, if you're doing the right thing. And I think being able to surround yourself with people who are dealing with very similar challenges and right there along with you on that same journey just really helps you through challenging days and helps you to bounce off stuff or ideas off of other people in your cohort. Um, And then secondly, it's just the mentorship that these accelerators provide. So it's really incumbent upon you as the founder to take advantage of the resource But if you're somebody who's an entrepreneur, you're likely a hustler, you're grinding, you're like reaching out to anybody and everybody that you know for help or advice or feedback. And so I think that if you're doing an accelerator, just reaching out to anybody that you potentially think could be helpful and just taking it in like a sponge and just taking in that knowledge, just learning as much as you can from people because at the end of the day, the people who are running accelerator programs are there to help you succeed. And I think once you see it in that lens, it just becomes, so helpful to be in that community but i could not recommend an accelerator highly enough for an aspiring entrepreneur especially an accelerator that isn't a vertical that you're operating in whether it be digital health or fintech or any other industry because then you'll have the most relevant industry connections within that program
2: wonderful advice and i'm so glad that you had had that experience there and i hope that our listeners can Take that to heart um, and seek out accelerators for our aspiring entrepreneurs. So earlier in the in the discussion, you referenced referenced building a team as one of the primary challenges. Would you mind kind of telling us more about how you strategically selected, you know, your board and advisors and and those um, that are that's those that are supporting hops, Hopscotch?
1: Yeah, I think really early on your journey, you need to be very honest with yourself um, about what. Current, What your skills are as an individual, and then what gaps that what gaps exist on your team or what gaps you're going to need to have to fill in order to grow. And so for us really early on, we realized we had a major technical gap. And so that so finding somebody who could complement us on the technical side became just a hugely important activity that we had to work on. And so it wasn't something that we rushed. We wanted to make sure that we had the right person joining the team who had the right set of skills and most importantly was very aligned with the mission. Because if you don't bring on team members who are aligned with the mission, especially in the early days when there are challenges or when there are Really thorny situations you guys run yourself into it's just too easy to quit if you don't live and breathe what you're doing. So I think that having a very honest assessment of yourself and understanding where your gaps lie, and then trying to decide kind of what those crucial skill sets you need are, it's not finding people who you think you would, you know, want to grab a beer with on the weekend. It's those people are great, of course, but it's people who you feel you can like really um, push back on and you feel that you can really bounce ideas off of. It's people you can feel like you can have difficult conversations with and they don't need to be your best friends at all, but they have their people who, you think that you could really work well together, you resonate in terms of mindsets, and most importantly, you resonate together in terms of where you see the company going. Um, And then in terms of your advisory board, I think your advisory board's a little bit different. But for your advisory board, same kind of concept, you want to bring on people who have very complementary skill sets, and who can provide very tangible value. So you want to try and identify somebody who has a lot of industry connections that they're actively willing to make to you, or they have a lot of, um, sort of uh, very deep knowledge in a particular area that would be difficult to find or replicate elsewhere. Because as a startup, you're constantly trying to find assets that are unique and proprietary to you. And so if you can find an advisor who has this amazing network of people that they're willing to leverage and use for your benefit, then that's something that gives you an advantage as a startup. Because especially in healthcare, getting into hospitals or getting into health systems or insurers is really hard. so I think being able to find people who can, who are not only super smart, aligned with your vision, but also can provide really tangible value is important.
2: That's something that I never really thought of about the kind of selecting the board and advisor process is how much humility and like honest self-assessment that it takes to really build a good, a, 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 like advise the, the right team around you. That's not something that I, I had thought about. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. So we're going to kind of shift gears from talking to, to speaking a little bit more about professional development um, for the rest of the episode. Um, and just kind of on a personal note, sometimes I feel like I have two dueling values or aspirations or whatever you want to call them. I feel like I do have some, 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 aspir- uh, so, some entrepreneurial aspirations, but at the same time, I'm also extremely risk averse as a person. Would you mind speaking to those sorts of people like myself? And there are many others who, you know, feel kind of these inklings or these or whatever to to be an entrepreneur, but at the same time are risk averse.
1: Definitely. I think that that's such a common question I hear. And I think it surprises a lot of people when I say that by nature, I am also a very risk averse person. So I've never in a million years would have ever seen myself doing this. I always like, I saw myself going for my PhD and becoming a professor, which is like one of the most clear cut, straightforward lines possible. So I think that just because you're risk averse, doesn't mean that entrepreneurship isn't for you. Firstly, I think there are so many paths to entrepreneurship. There's so many different ways to be an entrepreneur and being an entrepreneur doesn't mean you're somebody who's necessarily building a business and raising capital. That is a definition of an entrepreneur, but it's not the all encompassing, Um, sort of terminology about what it means to be entrepreneurial. So what I'd say for kind of the person who thinks they want to pursue entrepreneurship is maybe not quite ready to begin is try and go to a company where you think that there's an entrepreneurial culture and spirit and they allow, they foster and encourage um, innovation. And what I mean by that is you want to be able to go somewhere where if you have an idea you feel that there's a pathway for you to actually implement that idea within the organization and you're going to be feel supported and there are mechanisms in which you can go about doing that. Because I think a lot of corporations can be stifling in terms of entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship rather. But then there's also companies that I've seen have done a really good job of supporting internal team members who've had an idea and who've wanted to pursue it further. So I think firstly, just being able to find an organization that really um, prioritizes that is important. And then I would also say that entrepreneurship can sometimes be Um, a little bit overwhelming or scary to people because they think that they need to have an idea and it needs to be an amazing idea. They need to come up with the next Uber or Airbnb. And it's like that lightning bulb moment that a lot of people feel that they haven't had. However, I would more so encourage aspiring entrepreneurs to think from the lens of a problem. So look for problems in your environment, look for really significant challenges or pain points. And once you sort of approach entrepreneurship from the lens of I want to solve this problem, rather than I want to bring this idea to market, then you can really begin with the singular focus on the customer and what they're deep need or pain or challenges, because as an entrepreneur at its heart, a lot of people just go about their day-to-day lives and they see a problem and they're like, "Mm, I'm just going to deal with it. Like I, it is what it is, but entrepreneurs are like, no, this is not okay. Like I need to solve that. And so I think it's finding the problem that resonates most with you and you feel like you care enough to do something about it and then doing a lot of research and you don't need to quit your job to do any of this discovery or research. Um, there's so much that you can do in the entrepreneurial process before you jump into a venture full time. So I think just seeing it as a journey and just, you know, doing what you can when you can. And then if you feel like you're ready to take that leap, I would say go for it. But it's not something where it's like, I need to quit everything. I need to make this like massive shift in my life. Like, no, not at all.
0: Yeah, I think looking at it through the lens of a problem is some greatest advice for uh, future entrepreneurs um, that you've given there. Um, You touched on this a little bit about wanting to consider a PhD, going to be a professor. Um, But what were a lot of the considerations you were making when you were thinking um, preliminary um, about going down a more traditional pathway as opposed to forging your own way? What were you thinking about?
1: Definitely. So I think that, so initially it was, I had so many different I was just like all over the place, really, in terms of career. First, it was more academic. And then when I went to grad school, I was toying a lot with the idea of corporate strategy um, and business develop corporate development within like big organizations. And so while in grad school, as Christian had mentioned, yes, the hopscotch was my main focus. I think you'll see results where you put your focus. So I really prioritized hopscotch as my focus, wanted to see results there. I also had this like just... Um, concern in the back of my mind that, well, what if like corporate life is something that I'm actually more suited for? Um, And so what I did is I actually did an internship between my first and second year at a really large corporate organization to try and understand a little bit more about the structures, you know, the hierarchies, like how my day-to-day would look. And after spending a lot of time in that type of setting, I felt it was a very gut feeling for me where I would leave work every day and I just did not feel fulfilled, I would find myself constantly drifting off during the workday about hopscotch or this you know what I wanted to work on when I got home from my internship and it just didn't feel like that was the type of setting that. I personally resonated the most with. I'm the type of person who likes to move very, very quickly. I like to build teams. I like to break things and fix them. I like to talk to people. And at the end of the day, I just didn't feel at my heart that like corporate life was necessarily meant for me. And it was something that I definitely gave a chance to. Like I definitely tried and i worked but i think getting back to an earlier point we touched on self-reflection at the end of the day i just knew it wasn't where my heart was and so that's why i ultimately decided at the end of that summer that i didn't want to go back because i just didn't feel like my heart was in the right place there i kept you know drifting off about hopscotch and kept seeing myself in this other sort of capacity and so i think that it's really just a lot of deep introspection and self-reflection about what, types of, what type of career slash path makes the most sense for you and you think you'll be most fulfilled in. Not somebody else will be most fulfilled or not if it's a great job that anybody else would want or your classmates would strive for, but it's really thinking through kind of where you see your next steps and where you see yourself being most happy.
0: Yeah, personal fulfillment is very critical to, I think, long-term success, so I'm glad that you were able to find that. Our last question is one that we ask every guest here on our podcast, and it is, what tool would you recommend aspiring healthcare leaders add to their toolkit using your lens as a uh, freshly graduated but um, entrepreneur um, in a new company lens?
1: Yeah, definitely. So this is a little bit mainstream. So I apologize if this has been brought up, but I have to say, Headspace has been completely transformative for me in terms of, um, and it's not necessarily healthcare, but I think that as healthcare leaders, there's so much going on. You have to come to work or come to your job every day with um, a really solid, focused, disciplined mindset. And I think that initially. I would wake up and I would immediately look at my phone. I would go through my emails. I would start responding to emails. I would jump into my work day. And I realized that that wasn't giving me, I didn't have a clear prioritization of what were the need to do things for that day. I didn't have focus. I was kind of scatterbrained a lot of the, you know, for a lot of my day. However, um, my Space, which has been this app, mindfulness app has completely transformed kind of how I begin my day. And I just, see such a dramatic shift in terms of how i'm able to approach the day with more focus um, more resolution i have more clarity of thinking and i can show up to conversations more present and so i think that that's a paramount thing for healthcare leaders to be able to do given that there's so much you do in your everyday in your day-to-day lives. There's so much going on obviously now and going forward. So I think being able to focus on yourself first and um, sort of develop that more clarity and thinking and mindset has really been helpful for me at least.
0: Yeah, that was not mainstream at all. And (laughs) it was was very actionable. People can go download the app right now. would
1: highly recommend it's worth every single penny in my opinion. And then there's a lot of free apps of course but I think that this one's like, by paying for it I'm like I have to meditate like I'm I'm paying for it (laughs) so it makes me feel bad
0: (laughs) yeah no I think uh that's something that a lot of people forget about is how important it is to clear your head and 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 have that time to yourself which is really great but Marla thank you so much for joining us today we really appreciate it I think you've given a lot of great wisdom and um helped a lot of people out here and um given a lot of insight into your pathway
1: yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for everything that the both of you do to put on this podcast and to make information really disseminable to everybody. I love listening. Um, and I found it a lot of fun chatting with you guys this morning. Best start to the Friday, I could imagine.
0: Awesome. Perfect. Thank you so much uh, <laughs> yeah. for those kind words. And for those interested in hopscotch, you can find a link to their website in the show notes below and be sure to join us again in two weeks. Thank you.